This episode is brought to you by Hodnetuki CBD products. Hodnetuki offers a wide variety of CBD oil extracts with high quality hemp seed oil and other hemp products. Uh, this is specifically for European listeners and Czech listeners. You will find the description, the site link on the, on the show notes, but it is H-O-D-N-E-T-U-K-Y dot C-Z and you get a 10% discount uh, for all the listeners of the show. It is Psy10, so P-S-Y-10. That's Hodnetuki dot C-Z for high quality CBD products and great hemp uh, products and oils. I would also like to tell you about the online counseling services that I am offering. Uh, I know it is hard during this uh, pandemic and a lot of people are struggling. I will leave my email address in the show notes as well if you're interested in doing uh, online counseling. I would be happy to give you more information. Of course, everything that is shared with me will remain uh, confidential and uh, we can we can um, get in touch by email and then arrange accordingly. So if you are in need, don't do not hesitate to contact me for the online counseling services. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, I have with me Dr. Jeffrey Mishlov, who is somebody who is usually interviewing others and today is going to be interviewed by me. Uh, Jeffrey Mishlov is the host of the New Thinking Aloud show, uh, and he was previously the host of the TV show, The Thinking Aloud. He has been a great source of inspiration for me, and I've been uh, watching his interviews for over a decade. I was actually introduced to his, uh, his interviews during my undergraduate studies. Uh, I think the first interview I saw you do, uh, Jeff, was with uh, Rollo May, who is a great, uh, a great inspiration for me as well. And I saw also Albert Ellis, and al along with others, um, other interviews on the fields of consciousness, parapsychology. And Jeff, you also have written uh, a few books and you were the president of the, human, the, the American Humanistic uh, Psychology Association. Is that correct? Uh, actually, uh, I was the vice president of the vice. Humanistic Psychology Association. Okay. And Jeff, so... Uh, welcome to the show. And I, I have to say again, it's a pleasure and honor to have you on. And uh, this is the first show. So Psychology 360 likes to interview a wide variety of people from the field of psychology. And it's 360 because we go, we interview people from all the fields. So social psychologists, researchers and authors. And Jeff, I want to uh, start off by by asking you, so because you're the first parapsychologist I have on, and what was the spark? What got you to study parapsychology or to get into it? 
Well, I already had an interest as an undergraduate. I had done some ESP experiments and I did my senior honors thesis as an undergraduate psychology student on the psychology of religious mysticism. Mm -hmm. Then I enrolled as a graduate student at Berkeley in criminology. And I was basically in a psychology track within the school of criminology doing group therapy with murderers and rapists at San Quentin prison in California. But I wanted to switch over to interests that were more involved uh, with uh, my, well, let me put it this way. I wanted to study the positive side of human deviance rather than the negative side, and uh, which meant intuition, psychic functioning, mysticism, creativity, things of that sort. And uh, there wasn't really any good opportunity to do that at the university. You, know, you could study psychopathology and crime, but uh, the higher ranges of human functioning weren't really discussed. Uh, and I agonized over that for many, many months. Uh, and one day after months of worry and concern, how can I make this switch? I knew that the answer was going to come to me in a dream. And I actually had a dream that night. It, it was a strange dream. I dreamt I was visiting some friends of mine who lived in Berkeley, California, across town. I, in the dream, I knocked on the door of their apartment and nobody answered. And in the dream, I found the key, let myself into their apartment, and sitting on the living room floor was a magazine called I, E-Y-E. And I, in the dream, I'm paging through this magazine when I woke up with this feeling of this is the answer, I have it. But I didn't know, what, once I was awake, I didn't know what it meant. So I acted out the dream. I put on my tennis shoes. Back in those days, they didn't even have running shoes. And I ran across town, came to this apartment, knocked on the door. Nobody was home as I had dreamt. And I actually knew where they kept a key hidden. So I found their key under the doormat, let myself in, walked into the living room, smack in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine called Focus. And I started paging through it. And it was the magazine of listener-sponsored radio and television in the San Francisco Bay Area, KQED. And at that moment, I thought to myself, I could pursue my interests by getting involved in the nonprofit segment of the media, like KQED was. And uh, so living in Berkeley, I went over to uh, KPFA Radio, the Pacifica nonprofit radio station in Berkeley and offered to volunteer. And I already had my master's degree at that point in criminology, uh, but they said, here, sit at the desk. And when you hear the doorbell ring, press this button and let people in the front door. So I happily did that. And within a couple of weeks, I had learned a few things about how to produce radio programs. And within three weeks, 
the program director said, well, we have a slot for you. We'd like you to host this show called The Mind's Ear every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. And all of a sudden I found myself sitting across a table face-to-face with world-class experts in all the areas that interested me the most because they would come through the San Francisco Bay Area on their book tours. And that gave me the confidence to set up, to take advantage of a program the university had called the Individual Interdisciplinary Doctoral Program. And uh, that's what I did. I created my own unique doctoral program in parapsychology because even though the university had very few resources, I was able to find three faculty members who would sponsor me, including Dr. Charles Tarta, world-class parapsychologist himself and a specialist in altered states of consciousness. So uh, that's how it began. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. And talk about following your dreams. And within that, it's interesting. You saw the I title, and then you you said focus, I focus. And then there was also the ear connection when you were at the the (laughs) studio. So I mean, I, I can imagine that must have uh, blown your mind somehow, you know, to to see this this series of events unfolding in such a way. Well, that was nearly 50 years ago, back in 1972. And subsequently, uh, I've had many synchronistic events of that sort. And I take them to be signs that you're on the right path when things like that happen. In fact, what I tell people, is that if you resolve to become the very best version of yourself, the universe will reach out to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's almost it almost raises a paradox of predetermination, whether we are like on the right track and, and it's like we are doing what we came here to do. And it's like the universe is letting us know, okay, this is this is the path. So that's, that's very interesting. And I have to say also your experience with working with criminals, people in, in the prison system must have shown you, you know, were, were there certain parts of yourself maybe? Because I, I know like working in counseling, we find our shadow or we find aspects of ourselves in other people very often. And were there like certain things there that, uh, you know, that, that you had like some part of your shadow that maybe you saw in them, or was it too much drainage for you, like too much energy being drained? Well, both, as a matter of fact. Okay. I, I felt a strong kinship with the inmates at San Quentin, even the murderers and, and rapists that I uh, dealt with. I, I had a supervisor, and he was always telling me, uh, he used this phrase, he said, they are a different kind of cat, <laughs> to imply that they're not quite human. But yeah. I found that they were very human, that the difference between me, a graduate student uh, at the university, and these poor men who were in prison uh, seemed very, very slight, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. And I, and I rejected the idea that they should be treated as something other than human. And uh, Today, especially because as a parapsychologist, one of the issues uh, 
that I think prevents parapsychology from becoming more widely accepted is that people are afraid of psychokinesis, that, that if people have an aggressive impulse, which all people have, and they happen to have psychokinetic abilities, it could hurt people. And, you know, all across uh, America and in, especially in Europe, it's only a few hundred years since witches were burned at the stake. That's how yeah. strong the fear was. And uh, I find today in the work that I do, I did a 10-year study with a, a man who uh, I called the PK man. Actually, that's what he called himself for psychokinesis. And, and he would use his psychokinetic abilities to attack people. Uh, my lesson from that was that you need to treat all people with respect. Uh, what happened, of course, in his case is he'd come along and say, I can, I'm the great PK man. I can use my powers to help your community to end the drought, for example. And then people would laugh at him and say, you're an idiot. You're crazy. Go away. And then he'd say, well, I guess I better teach you a lesson. Mm. And uh, he, he taught many people lessons using psychokinesis. Uh, he even tried it on me once, but for me, the the result is you never know who might have that kind of an ability. Uh, and so it's a good thing to treat everybody with respect. It doesn't mean you have to kowtow to them, but it certainly does mean that uh, they deserve a measure of politeness from you. Sure, I, I completely agree. And I would like to give the listeners a little bit of context into because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of skeptics listening in and saying, oh, what, what are they talking about? You know, uh, these, these things are fantasy. And of course, it could be like one of the deep, deep rooted fears uh, that you mentioned. But tell me or tell us a little bit about the PK man and how you came to meet this uh, individual and, and what exactly was the, st the study and the book you, you ultimately wrote? Because I, I think many people listening won't know the, the background and context of this. Well, I, uh, back in 1976, when I was a graduate student, I went to visit Hal Putoff and Russell Targ at SRI International, a big military industrial think tank in Menlo Park, California. And they were doing the early work on remote viewing. They were getting funding from the military intelligence establishment. And uh, they were friends of mine uh, and they were gonna show me remote viewing. And I went and did a very successful remote viewing session at their laboratory. At the same time, there was a, a severe drought going on in California. Now, Putoff and Targ had also achieved a lot of public notoriety because at that time, they had uh, done some studies with Uri Geller, the Israeli psychic, and had published those studies. And it was all over the media. Um, and at the, they were getting letters from this man, Ted Owens. And he wrote to them basically saying, why are you wasting your time with Uri Geller? Because I'm the world's greatest psychic. In fact, he said, to prove to you that I am the world's greatest psychic, I'm going to end the drought that's going on right now in California. In fact, you'll know I ended it 
because there will be rain and snow and sleet and hail and uh, every kind of weather and power blackouts and UFO sightings. And your newspaper, your local newspaper, in just a few days uh, is going to publish a story saying that the drought is over. Well, all of that happened. And uh, Putoff wrote back to Ted Owens, and he said, that was a very nice prediction. Congratulations. Ted Owens wrote back to him and saying, it wasn't a prediction. I caused it. And at that point... Borov and Targ wanted to get the file out of their office because they were, as I mentioned, getting funding from military intelligence from the CIA. And the last thing they wanted was another flamboyant psychic like Uri Geller who would create publicity. Uh, They wanted uh, to reduce that kind of publicity. So they asked me if I would take the file and study it and, and so that they didn't have to worry about it or do anything further about it at that point. And I took their files. I ended up meeting Ted Owens uh, because that summer in London, there was a uh, parapsychology conference going on. And Actually, it was the summer of 77. It was a a bit later, uh, a year later. And there was a drought in London and the people in London had heard about what had happened in uh, California with Owens ending the drought. So they invited him to the conference in London and that I was attending as well. And the day I arrived in London, it was a very severe drought. They had to bring water in by truck to some of the outlying communities. And the friends I was with said, uh, if you wanna get your picture on the front page of the London Times, all you have to do is go down to Piccadilly Circus carrying an umbrella. People will think you're crazy and they'll take your picture and and you'll be in the newspaper. That's how severe the drought was. Um, The newspaper said no end in sight. But the day Ted Owens arrived in England, it began raining and pouring so heavily that they had to close down the the tube. That's what they call the subway there. And uh, within a couple of days, once again, the newspaper story said drought ended. Uh, So I met him in London and It's a long story, but I began researching the man for 10 years. I found that uh, in my files, there are today 168 examples of these demonstrations of psychokinetic ability that he performed. Roughly two thirds of them worked out the way he said they were would. Uh, Usually rare events, things that you would not expect to happen by chance at all, like UFO sightings specified, you know, to the time and date and place. Yeah, and and sorry, sorry, Jeff, uh, but the psychokinetic events, do you mean also like being able to move objects at will or uh, things of that sort or more like predictions and saying, I will, you know, there will be a a you and and I actually the the new, 
technical term is UAP, I believe, unidentified aerial phenomena, which may be actually yeah. better because with flying object, you know, you immediately think of uh, aliens and things like that, which uh, to me, I mean, I don't fully accept that, you know, because there's been UAP or, you know, UFOs for history, but we don't really know uh, what they are or what, you know, what is causing that phenomenon. Well, Owen specialized in large scale effects. He claimed that on one or two occasions, he was actually, it turns out, an assistant to J.B. Rhine at Duke University back in the 1940s. Uh, and he said he, he levitated some small objects back then, he claims. I've never been able to verify that. But mm -hmm. he, he tended to specialize in large scale events, power blackouts, dr ending droughts, um, earthquakes, tornadoes, uh, things of that sort uh, is, is what he liked to focus in on, and including UFO sightings. That was one of the things. Another uh, type of psychokinetic event he liked to work on were athletic events. He claimed that he could cause the team that was the favored team to fumble the ball so that the underdogs would win the game. And he seemed to be quite successful at that. Uh, uh, one researcher studied him for an entire season of American football and found that he was 75% uh, accurate in uh, what he claimed he was doing, helping the underdogs win the game. Wow. Well, so, yeah. So, and it sounds like he was using these powers for both good and uh, or for more for constructive and destructive purposes. Um, but could you uh, mention, like, did you see him? Like, how was he doing this? Was he just like focusing uh, and, and causing this? Was there some kind of presence that, that you felt like when, when he would, uh, when he would initiate these types of um, events? Was there something palpable there? Well, it was very complex. For example, uh, he claimed that he was doing these things through the agency of, he called them the space intelligences. He uh -huh. said they are live in a giant invisible UFO hanging over the planet. If you were to see them, he said they would look like giant uh, insects, praying mantises, but they were really energy beings. Mm -hmm. And he said they watched him throughout his life ever since he was a child and they made sure that throughout the course of his life, he had many professions. Uh, he worked at the parapsychology lab. He was a jazz drummer. He was a high-speed typist in a law office. He had a, um, uh, an act in, a, in a, like a circus. He uh, was throwing knives at his wife. And, and oh. he was a bullwhip artist. And, and he said all of these different professions prepared him to work with their very complex symbol system and that he would send them symbols of what he wanted them to produce and they would do it. And he said he would draw these, he called it a PK map, little pictures of symbols of what he wished them to accomplish. And he would concentrate on the PK map and then it would happen. Now, now, at other times, he would say that it was his own psychokinetic abilities. So it was very confusing, actually, mm -hmm. the way he tried to describe what he did. But 
I suppose you could say he was working with visualization and affirmations, not so different from uh, all kinds of people who work with positive thinking uh, methods. Yeah, I saw you had uh, Mitch Horowitz on uh, a few weeks back, and he's he's doing a lot to revive this uh, the old uh, thing, you know, the new uh, thought movement and this positive. Um, I call it the precursor of positive psychology, even though positive psychologists don't like to, uh, you know, admit that they're they're working on similar on a similar framework, but. Anyways, that's, I mean, this is absolutely fascinating stuff. And so how did the uh, relationship with uh, the PK man evolve and how did it, I mean, he, he passed away and what, what, what happened? What were, what were some of the most memorable uh, things throughout you? And, and you said he even uh, threatened you or he, he, he made some kind of uh, curse to, towards you or some kind of... Uh, I don't know what the yeah, call I'll, I'll tell you that story. Uh, when I first met him, I thought it would be great if he could produce a UFO for me because there were examples in the files that he could do that. And he agreed. He said, I'll produce a UFO. In fact, he said, I'll produce three of them within a 90-day period within a 50-mile radius of San Francisco. And... Uh, things were working out. There was a, a, one case appeared in the newspaper. A person was abducted, apparently, and uh, we interviewed that person. It looked very interesting. Uh, he, uh, and then I, Owens contacted me, and he said, I feel a big one coming. It's going to happen in a couple of days. He said, there's going to be an amazing UFO sighting. It's going to be seen by hundreds of people. It will be photographed. He said, the, one of your local newspapers is going to run that photograph on the front page. Well, that's actually what happened three days later. And not only that, it was videotaped, and the videotape was run on the local TV news in San Francisco. So, uh, so he had two out of three uh, already, and one of the best UFO sightings on record at that time. And uh, I was on the phone with him, and he was bragging about what a wonderful job he was doing. And I said to him, well, Ted, you only got two so far. You still have a third one to mm. do. And he got angry at me. He slammed the phone down and hung up on me. And within minutes, I began to feel, you get this sensation in your throat, like you know a sore throat is about to come on really bad. And I had that feeling. Mm. Uh, I f figured I was getting a cold or something. Uh, because it, it's just scratchy enough that you know this is real. Mm -hmm. and, and then 45 minutes later, he called me back. And he said, without explaining anything, he said, Jeffrey, I'm sorry. I promise I will never do that to you again. And within moments, the sore throat went away. Wow. And, and, uh, you know, I had always treated him with respect, and and I think you know that got to him. Even though I might disagree with him from time to time, I was courteous to him. I didn't treat him like he was some sort of a a, a criminal uh, or a crazy person. 
But other people who did that, uh, sometimes the lessons were very unpleasant. Uh, and so I, my basic ground rule in this <laughs> is, is that if only everybody would treat everybody else with respect, it would be a much better world. And, and we could also begin to address some of the serious issues around psychokinesis that uh, very few people want to even talk about. Even in parapsychology, uh, a case like Ted Owens is, is not well received. Um, mm. it, it frightens people. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that. And I, I don't know if it's, it's been because of millennia of certain types of religious control. That's, that's you know, because I, 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 I don't recall where I read about this, but I, if I recall correctly, didn't Ted Owens uh, claim to be a reincarnation of uh, certain religious figures as well? Or is that... You know, I, I, it's very interesting uh, that you mentioned that because now that I think about it, he never discussed uh, anything having to do with reincarnation. He okay. did, though, discuss all sorts of mystical experiences that he had. He used to go... Uh, to places like Egypt, and he felt he was communing with uh, spiritual beings who lived inside the pyramids, and, and the same thing for some of the pyramids in South America. Um, he even founded a church. He called it the Church of Sota, S-O-T-A, which stood for Secrets of the Ages. Oh, but wow. uh, uh, I've never heard him mention anything about past lives. Okay, so I may be mistaken, but the question I was the the thought I had here is it's possible that these this fear comes from millennia of certain religion uh, religious types of control which have in a way created or partially created our Western culture. So I think of Judeo Christian culture and the taboos that it has towards or that it, they they have towards. Um, things like magic or, uh, you know, uh, what they call sorcery is, is magic. And Islam is the same. It's mostly these Abrahamic traditions that have these strong taboos. And so I wonder if that's where this fear comes from or if it's found also in other places. Well, I think if you go back to primitive societies, uh, they recognize uh, these powers and the uh, negative effects they can have. Uh, you know, they have sorcerers. They believe in sorcery and uh, the power of hexes and, and curses. And they have a variety of folk traditions for dealing with them. Uh, and then, you know, during the Enlightenment uh, in Europe, in the 18th century, uh, we prided ourselves on being rational and we began to look down on these primitive societies and their various folkways were treated as superstitions. And I think as a result of that, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. That's so funny, Jeff, you were saying that that was exactly what I was thinking. That exact uh, phrase was on my mind right now because I was thinking about the loss of the mystical way during the enlightenment and this idea which i you know I, I was kind of uh making too much of a blanket statement there about the religion because 
there's many ways of interpreting texts, religious texts. There's the rational, which obviously that people get um, hung up on because many concepts don't make rational sense. But then there's the heart. There's the you know connecting the heart, connecting like the a different way of taking in the word. So that's interesting. And just to, uh, the the last thing about the PK man that had. Uh, Owens was what 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 happened like were, did you guys split off in good terms or because um, I know you have the book about about him and, and it, the studying of of this uh, individual well he desperately wished to get the attention of the U.S. government he mm -hmm. wanted funding from the government. He said, if they would just set me up in an institute, I could use my powers for the betterment of humanity. But the government naturally ignored him over and over and over again. Uh, and he went on what he called a war against the government. He was going to show them that by causing poltergeists to appear on U.S. Uh, Navy battleships and the like, and accidents at nuclear reactors. And uh, there, some of these things did occur, and they were in the newspapers. He'd always send me the newspaper clippings. But he, some of his predictions, as I mentioned, didn't happen at all. Mm -hmm. About a third of them didn't work out. And it, you know, his war against the government was not going anywhere. And I began to lose interest in him. Mm. I thought he was just going, in spite of his talent, he was going off the deep end. Mm -hmm. And then one night, in fact, it was Christmas Eve in 1985, he called me up. And I remember it vividly. He said he had a booming voice. He said, Jeffrey, this is the most important phone call you will ever receive. He said, it's up to you. You have to contact the U.S. government and tell them not to launch the next space shuttle, because if they do, my UFOs are going to knock it right out of the sky. Wow. Now, that was right before, uh, about three weeks later, the uh, Challenger yeah. space shuttle uh, accident occurred and uh, I, naturally you know i felt as at the time i had no influence over the u.s government they weren't going to stop the launch of a space shuttle because some person in california called them up and said the ufos are going to shoot it out of the sky right uh, so i didn't i did nothing but after that event I felt I really was ignoring him for too long. I needed to pay attention to him. And so I took his training program. He had, he offered a three-day training program and I brought him out to San Francisco. I had a few friends with me and it was all hypnosis. He, he was also a hypnotist and he had a, the three of us in a hotel room for two days under hypnosis the whole time. Uh, taking his hypnotic uh, instructions, which I recorded the whole thing. I still have the recordings and I uh, even make them available for people. He asked me when we started, what, what do you want to do if you have these powers? I've been in touch with other people who he had worked with and they said they could call UFOs down and things. And I told him I had no interest in any of that. I said, my interest is simply 
to be a communicator to the public at large about the realities of the psychic and esoteric worlds. That's all I want to do. And so I took his program within, I think, six weeks of having completed his program. I launched the Thinking Aloud TV series. We started out on a local public access cable channel in Marin County, California. And within two years, we were out on the satellite uh, being covered by over 100 TV stations all across North America. And even the work I do today on the new Thinking Aloud YouTube channel is sort of, you know, a continuation of that effort. So I feel like uh, whatever... Uh, ability Ted Owens may have helped with, uh, that's the direction I took it in. Okay, so it was, so for you, it was kind of like a, like a, a culmination or like a, a, um, you know, finding the true path for you, and like allowing these types of thinkers. And because you've had, I mean, on thinking aloud, the, the, the classic TV series, you had some incredible uh, guests on there, and you are an absolutely fantastic interviewer. I, I have to say, for for those who who haven't checked it out, I will leave the description on the show notes. But you had uh, Irvin Yalom, you had Albert Ellis, you had a variety of classical psychologists, authors, as well as people who are involved with parapsychology and people such as uh, Terence McKenna, like the uh, psychedelic uh, researcher and, and author. So it was such a great variety and it was a great inspiration for me personally. And I have to, I have to um, go back a little bit uh, here, but because you, you said you were also influenced uh, by William James. And William James uh, is probably my favorite psychologist because I always, I always recommend like students who take my courses, I say to them, if you want inspiration for future research, read William James, uh, The Principles of Psychology. It's, I mean, it's a brick, but there's so much... Um, unchartered material that he was just I mean he, he just was laying out in his stream of consciousness all this uh you know these amazing ideas so was that like because we we jumped from the um San Quentin experience to the parapsychology but it seems like there's something uh missing you know there's there was your dream but there was what what else propelled you there well, of course, you know, we're talking about a lifetime of experience. So yes. it's, it, it's hard to cover it all. But uh, when I was an undergraduate working on the psychology of religious mysticism, I started that project by imagining that religious mysticism is a form of psychopathology. And uh, I was trying to identify it. But as I began studying uh, the work of people like Abraham Maslow and William James and uh, other great writers and psychologists who, who explored it, I, I came to a very different conclusion. It seemed to me that actually mystical experience is a hallmark of people who are the great creative contributors to humanity. Uh, and that 
there's something very unique about human consciousness, something that people would call, you know, discovering the God within yourself. That yes. ultimately human consciousness links us to things that go way beyond any sort of rational conception of uh, the human being as a, uh, a machine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess this ties into what, what you were saying before about this fear of the um, psychic abilities or parapsychological, let's call them powers. It's kind of like we are under the misconception of who we are that we are much more than what we think we are, what we've been told that we are. And that maybe a lot of the wisdom of the, you know, mystical esoteric uh, traditions uh, have some, there's something there. And it would be, it seems to me like it would be quite foolish for the field of psychology to just brush it away completely and say, oh, this is, this is nonsense. And I would like to also mention, like, I don't know what you probably know, but if we look even at Sigmund Freud, who was very, uh, you know, atheistic, uh, materialistic, although in his diaries, we find a lot of conflict about that. We have the line that I, I found this out a few weeks ago. I knew that he was a student of Charcot, the, the hypnotist. But the line goes back, the, the, the teaching goes to Mesmer, Anton Mesmer, uh, and animal magnetism. And, and so, you know, the line between psychology, it, it's, it's a big taboo. It's a big taboo. And yeah, you know, go ahead. Well, I, what happened is, of course, William James was a psychical researcher. He became president of the Society for Psychical Research. He was very interested in studying mediumship, and he was quite convinced that uh, the mediums that he worked with had paranormal abilities. Um, but then what happened in the field of psychology as a whole is that it became influenced by the positivist movement in philosophy and behaviorism became the new fad that we, we could only investigate not consciousness, not anything internal, but human behavior, things that can be actually seen and touched and measured. So psychology, starting in the 1920s, 10 years after William James' death, really turned away from the study of consciousness completely for a good 50 years. That study began to become reawakened in the 1970s with uh, the discovery of things like biofeedback and the importance of uh, psychedelic drugs and altered states of consciousness. Uh, you know, William James did say something that struck me as very crucial. He said, we cannot expect progress in this field decade by decade, the way you would find in most fields of science. The issues are too deep and too profound. So we have to look for progress by the century and by the half century instead. And, and I think that's true, you know, very slowly, half century by half century, you can see that we are making progress. Yeah, and you can see even with the return of the psychedelic interest that's coming about now, and it's becoming more acceptable. And I find that to be a, a sign of progress, because initially, you know, these 
uh, researchers were, you know, they, they had great results in, in things like dependencies, addictions, but then they were shut down. And so now there's, there's kind of a new, you know, a revival, which is me positive because it opens also aspects of uh, altered states of consciousness, which is more important than just like, you know, the, the other uh, curative effects. In my opinion, it's, it's also about exploring parts of ourselves that we don't know about. Now, no, go ahead. Well, one of the most fascinating findings coming out of the new research on psychedelics is that when people are having these amazing, powerful experiences full of lights and colors and insights, the brain is actually quieting down as if uh, to emphasize the theory that the brain is not the generator of consciousness, because if that were the case, the brain should be more active on psychedelics. But instead, the brain acts as a filter that consciousness comes from some other dimension outside of the brain. You might even say a non-physical dimension. At the, the, what the brain does is it keeps us from having cosmic consciousness all the time, which would be overwhelming for people to be aware of everything all at once. Uh, but in psychedelics, as, as the brain quiets down, or even in meditation, people experience expansions of consciousness. Yes. And actually, that I had Bruce Grayson on a few weeks back, and he was talking about this exact same thing. I once had a dream where it was told to me that, you know, this kind of illusion or these kinds of filters that we have that dilute, if you will, this universal consciousness is actually, if you take it well and you're aware, it's actually a, um, a great privilege that we are able to be incarnate and, uh, you know, experience all these uh, things with the flesh, which come with a cost, of course. But it was an interesting thought that this illusion is also kind of a privilege that, you know, other entities, maybe if you believe in that, do not have. <laughs> so I think that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, and it gives a different perspective, but we must be aware that it is ultimately an, an illusion. Now, I want to go back on something that, that you were mentioning related to the study at SRI or the studies at SRI that you, you were talking about, because I'm familiar uh, with some of the work of Russell Targ. Uh, he's, he's an extremely fascinating and intelligent person, but how, like... Because even there, like there's there's been this, this, these studies uh, sponsored by the U.S. government, and I'm uh, I'm sure there were uh, at the time of the Cold War in the Soviet Union, there were probably other psi uh, psychic spies and and people uh, you know trying out the remote viewing. But what what um, what came uh, you know what 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 happened to that research? Is it ongoing do you know do you think it's because the official story is that it's it's been uh shut down and there wasn't enough uh you know that it didn't it didn't provide enough uh adequate results well it was shut down that's true 
and uh, subsequently the research uh, continues, uh, but in the, in the public domain, not under the sponsorship, to my knowledge, of the U.S. government, uh, although I cannot say what every other government in the world might be doing. Um, there have been dozens of books published by people who were part of uh, the U.S. military uh, project uh, doing remote viewing and many, many research papers have been published. So there's a vast literature available now on, on the field. Uh, and in addition to that, there is the International Remote Viewing Association that was set up right around the time that the uh, government programs closed down. Uh, they have annual conferences. Uh, there are I would say at this point, many, many dozens of organizations engaged in training remote viewing abilities, in working on applied projects, in archaeology, in crime detection, in uh, financial forecasting. Uh, there a lot of activity uh, going on at this point. It's become, uh, I would call it a cottage industry. Of, of sorts okay that's and and uh jeff for you personally i know um that this this question like what are your personal experiences with these things with with psi abilities have you uh have you been able to remote view or do any of these uh types of things well i don't consider myself a a great psychic or a great remote viewer. I've had a lot of experience. I've had a lot of positive uh, successes. I've had a number of failures. Um, I'm primarily a, uh, a scholar and actually primarily these days, almost all of my time and energy goes into uh, hosting the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube and bringing the work of other people who are uh, better researchers or better remote viewers or uh, organizers of remote viewing projects uh, or, or better people as psychotherapists. I like shining the spotlight on other people and, and bringing their work to the attention of the world. That's, that's my primary function these days. Yeah, and, and that leads me to the next question, which is, since you've had, uh, I'm guessing, hundreds of guests on throughout the years, uh, who has been the most interesting, because or the one who has touched you the most? Because I've seen uh, fascinating people, like even John Lilly, the the uh, who was doing the, the the work with the flotation tank, dolphin communication, and just a, a great psychonaut. So, who was your favorite? Or who is your favorite? Well, I, I have been very privileged to know hundreds of people working in this field. And uh, the one person who, for me, has, has sort of stood out uh, head and shoulders above the others has been Jean Houston. And, and she's still an active person, uh, leading uh, webinars and seminars. Uh, for several years, I attended her mystery school, and I started... Uh, working with Jean back in the 1970s. I think uh, she's just uh, brilliant. She's been a, a psychedelic researcher. She has been um, 
a teacher of esoteric uh, traditions through her mystery school program. She's been uh, a pioneer in the human potential movement. Uh, she's worked with uh, some of really great people, people who reach a pinnacle of their career and then want to take it another step, like Jimmy Carter after he left the presidency. Uh, Gene Houston worked with him about becoming a, a great past president or mm -hmm. a Norman, uh, Norman Cousins who, who uh, was experiencing, he was a great editor and uh, writer and then uh, she worked with him uh, to combat illness and he, he became a he, uh, had a whole new career writing about healing uh, so I, I think she's an extraordinarily gifted person and I've benefited uh, from uh, knowing her very much wow Jean Houston and and what is there the mystery school is like a kind of Greek uh, revival or what is what is it? Uh... Well, you know, uh, I don't know that it's active currently because of COVID. And, mm -hmm. you know, that was decades ago when I worked with her in, in that. But yes, you could say it was uh, an attempt to get back to the essence of the ancient Greek mystery traditions. Uh, it involved uh, attending nine weekends a year. Um, and other people do mystery schools or have done mystery schools as, as well. Gene's uh, good friend, Gay Gare Luce, ran a program called the Nine Gates Mystery School. I don't know that any of them are active currently. I can't say for sure. But right. I do know if you, if you Google Gene Houston, you'll, a, a great deal of information will come up for you. Yeah, I will definitely check her work out. And to to close uh, to close this a uh, great interview, which by the way is the last interview of 2020, this leads me to the final question, which is, where do you see the field of parapsychology going? What are the trends, the positive trends, the negative trends, and what is your prediction for the next decade or even the next year? Well, I try to take a long-term view. I like to think, say, over the next 500 years, <laughs> where is the field going? I think it's necessary because there's so much resistance right now. We live yeah. in a very materialistic age, and uh, it's causing great problems, obviously. Materialistic science is uh, resulting in uh, enormous ecological catastrophes. At the same time, it's going to take science to uh, pull us out of, of the problems that science has created, but it will need to be a different kind of science. And uh, it strikes me that really uh, there is a tiny fraction of the population, maybe 1%, who can really look at the data of parapsychology without getting emotionally caught up in, in the idea that it must all be fraud uh, because it's impossible from a materialistic metaphysics or on the other side, it must all be the work of the devil and it's evil. Mm -hmm. uh, between those two extremes, there, there's a small group of people in the middle. But I envision that over the long run, over let us say the next thousand years, that's all going to change. And parapsychology will 
at some point in the future become the centerpiece of uh, a new metaphysics that will uh, uh, be the basis of a new kind of civilization, something very different from what we're experiencing today. Uh, but in the short run for the next year or the next 10 years, it's, it's very hard to say we're facing so many problems on so many levels, economic, uh, in terms of uh, our politics, in terms of uh, the uh, simply feeding the, the population that we have. We're going through a mass extinction. Well, that's been going on for thousands of years. Uh, I mean, humanity itself is causing a, a, an ecological crisis on the planet. Uh, we have to come to terms with that. We have to um, evolve, I suppose, ethically as human beings so that we can deal with the very problems that we're creating. And then maybe humanity will be ready to address the uh, data that parapsychologists have been providing now for nearly 150 years. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I, I think that what this ties into is a, a new form of holism, that once we start observing the interconnectedness of everything, of nature, of ourselves, then these concepts can make more sense, like a concept like synchronicity, like we experience synchronicity. And it's just a normal part of, of life. It doesn't have to be uh, labeled as some kind of uh, paranormal thing. So yeah, I think that's a, a very um, hopeful message. And I I agree. And I think that we also have to keep in mind the technological advancements and the fact that, you know, we are like through technology now, we are doing the things that classically would be uh, something that, you know, magicians or people with psi power would do, like, you know, telepathy, like texting and, and things like that. So I think that these abilities will come to be even more. Uh, sought out and rare if there's a people who can uh, who have the discipline to disconnect uh, for enough time from technology to reconnect with the source the the actual source then uh, th they, these people will probably be considered the sages or maybe they will be hated one of the two <laughs> but Jeff? Well, before we close, Simon, I think it would be useful for your listeners to know that two years ago, in August of 2018, there was a milestone that took place. The American Psychologist, which is the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association, published an article, a survey of uh, all of the research in parapsychology written by Etzel Cardenia, who's a professor at Lund University in Sweden and a former or editor, maybe current editor, I'm not quite sure, the Journal of Parapsychology, summarizing meta-analyses covering different types of parapsychology research, over 1,400 different experiments were included uh, with overwhelmingly uh, significant results statistically. The results uh, held up even as the experimental conditions were ever more rigorous. Um, this is a landmark article. And so I do think that uh, 
people in the psychology profession now have something to to look at uh, that shows that uh, parapsychology is indeed a very legitimate science and the data is very real and uh, for, for this to be acknowledged uh, by the American Psychological Association is a very important step forward. So I would say that we should see more mainstream people in psychology acknowledging this research over the coming decade. Great, absolutely. So Jeff, uh, is there, do you, I will leave your, your uh, show on the, in the show notes below. Is there anything, any place that uh, the listeners can find you online that you would like to share? Newthinkingaloud.com is, is the place to go. And also the New Thinking Aloud Foundation, newthinkingaloud.org. And aloud is spelled a-L-L-O-W-E-D, and New Thinking Aloud is all one word. Great. Well, Jeff, it's been an immense pleasure to have you on and an honor again. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope to talk to you again in the future. You're doing wonderful work, Simon. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.